0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Henry Graham, dedicated to Henry Foreman, in the year of the primal war to the dawn of terrestrial birth, men mastered the mammoth and horse. Man was the lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of an tree. He compassed the earth therein, the man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the liquid steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire. He drove the celestial team, the man was
1: the lord of the fire. from their Well, well, well you made it to the other side made it across the rope bridge the other side of the canyon now you're going to scale up that hill and find you've just got another canyon to cross and I don't know if the rope bridge is going to be I don't know if it's going to be able to take your weight this year, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see, this is Alan Averill this is episode 38 if I am not mistaken, I might be and this is a new year new year Different from the previous? Not so far. And this is the, I suppose, the ubiquitous podcast end of year, roundup. start the new year, grind up, whatever you want to call it, in the immortal words of Scooter. Fuck 2020. And the reality is, the New Year's Day was no different to the day before. We seem to be in the same mire, the same quagmire. So, this podcast is going to be, I suppose, a ramble across my different impressions of the year, my takes on the year, my optimism, my pessimism. Yes, I did just say the word optimism, in case you just spat out your coffee or whatever it was that you were drinking. I'm going to try and find some. I'm going to try and find some. Um, It is a little difficult. It is a little difficult, but we will try. So, this podcast had two openings. I'm going to read you the first one, move through that, and then maybe we'll look at the other one, because my mind is quite conflicted as to where this podcast should go, because I'm just sort of consumed by too many thoughts, too many angles, too many ways of looking at things. My brain is a bit broken, as I assume all of your brains are a little bit on the feverish, on the broken side as well. So, initially, here is what I wrote. I thought I will make a grand gesture, a grand opening with this podcast. And here it is. Let's go with it and then we'll go with the slightly more mundane opening Ye cannot make us now less capable, less knowing, less eagerly pursuing of the truth, unless ye first make yourselves that made us so. Less the lovers, less the founders of our true liberty. We can grow ignorant again, brutish, formal and slavish, as ye found us. But you then must first become that which ye cannot be, oppressive, arbitrary and tyrannous, as they were from whom ye have freed us. Oh, now there's a pretentious opening, right? John Milton, Ario a quote from the great John Milton on the freedom of speech was how I thought I would open my new podcast for the new year in grand, with a grand design, with a grand projection. Um, And, you know, a little bit of pretense. Um, Heavy Metal Bookworms may recognize his work from the epic Paradise Lost, where we get our healthy... Sympathy for the Devil, from I suppose, throughout the metal scene, running like a running like a some form of some form of overarching narrative that the whole metal scene has to bend its knee to. Sympathy for the Devil. That was actually written before the great poet and intellectual became a civil servant under the rule of Oliver Cromwell, a name that isn't quite so popular over here in Ireland for reasons I won't go into quite yet, maybe, maybe sometime. In the meantime, just listen to the Reverend Bazaar track of the same name. But it was 276 years ago on the 19th of December that the Puritans in England cancelled Christmas. Yep. Offended by, well, its indulgent nature, they sought to enforce new strict laws across the state yet the great celebrated attack on censorship that Pagetica was at the time was recanted soon enough i suppose we could say as milton found it he found it impossible to reconcile his belief in the freedom of speech with his position at the right hand of policy making as he joined cromwell's puritanical government maybe this is the lesson my friends that even with the best of intentions we can end up becoming compromised so that was initially my first dramatic opening to this new podcast, I thought, ah, oh, that'll that'll um, portray me in the most pretentious light possible. And then, you know what? I was sitting on the Lewis, which is like our version of the tram, a sort of electronic tram, not, not electronic, uh, a tram system we paid some company in Asia, who knows, countless billions to make twenty, twenty-five years ago after ripping up the old trams all across Dublin that were there at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century. And we tore them up as we found this, um, how shall we say, this manufacturing marvel of the uh, empire unworthy for Irish feet to walk upon. And we ripped them all up. Well, maybe, maybe not. Either way, I was sitting on the Lewis and two junkies were sitting within earshot, let's say, and they are having a discussion about what's going on, about the situation that we find ourselves in, and one says to the other, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't think the government is, uh, the government isn't telling us the truth, buddy, do you know what I mean? His mate goes, yeah, yeah. I know, I was thinking the same thing. No, they're not not telling us the truth. The cases, man, the cases, but... I mean, I don't know anybody who's got this, this thing, do you know what I mean? No, you're right, you're right. I don't know. I I, you, I don't think this is going anywhere, man. Don't think this is going anywhere. So you can't even get a bleeding point, do you know what I mean? Something like this. Something like this. That's how Dublin people actually sort of sound. Not quite like I do. Not quite like I do with my perfumed, pompadoured... West Brit of an accent. Um, these two salt of the earth fellas were getting to the nub of the issue and even they were saying to each other, I don't trust what's going on. And I thought to myself, am I on their side? Am I on their side of the tracks? Am I on the same team? Am I on the same team as these guys? Well, if you've been listening to the podcast, you probably would say so. And so where does that, where does that leave me in my grand opening of Ariel Pagitica when in fact two junkies on the Lewis seem to get to the heart of the issue pretty quick. Now I don't know which which path do we choose now. Do we path do we choose the path of the discussion among junkies or do we choose the path of um, free speech and all those kind of things? Well let's make the podcast a little bit of both. A little bit of both because There are so many talking points. There are so many things that I kind of want to talk about that I don't even know where to begin. I mean, first off, fuck you, 2020. Fuck you. Um, From the bottom of my black card, from the shard of flint in a vacuum that is my heart, um, with every ounce of energy in my body, I'll say fuck you. Glad to see the back of you. But... Does it mean that 2021 is going to be any better? I'm not so sure, but let's run through, let's rifle through the dusty shells of my um, my mind and see where we can go to. Because, I, like I said, I had grand plans of mentioning Milton and then discussing how Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are somewhat like Oliver Cromwell's Puritans. I mean, we've seen across the UK ideas like... They were banning alcohol sales in Wales, very similar to what the Puritans did. The idea that the state now says to you, hey, who are you conspiring with outside of your bubble? Isn't that a form of controlling one's sex life, which was also at the heart of the Puritanical decision to cancel Christmas 276 years ago? They did not want reverie. They did not want this orgiastic, joyous celebration, um, what they saw perhaps as an idolatrous almost iconoclastic week of imbibing and fun and joy. Because who could say that this year has been anything but joyless? Certainly, I would contend that it is not really living at all. It is surviving without any of the joys that make life worth living. However, anyway, my dear John Milton, why should we have free speech for fear of a puritanical society? Well, bent either way to the far left or the far right, as is the whim of society at the time, we're entering into uncharted waters now regarding what may be acceptable to say or not. I mean, I'm gonna bang the drum and scream and shout for liberty, freedom and sovereignty as I have been doing for all of the year. And you might think of me as, a, as an angry fool for doing that. But I will say this about the podcast if you've been following me. I have tried to hold the line between what I see as, you know, um, the sort of anarchic impulses of the of the far left to to tear down society, the you know um, sort of vindictive and purposeful lies of the far right. Um, neither of us wants to live in, I think, in the world that either of those either sides foresee, but they have the loud hailer. And the tiny percentage of people, for example, post on Twitter, something like five or 10 percent of people send 80 percent of tweets. But yet we're constantly subjected to what what is public opinion as if Twitter somehow is public opinion. But we know that it isn't. My point being that. My points of view that I've been expressing within the podcast at the very worst for me, I look like an angry fool in nine months' time when everything is back to normal. And as I said before, you can poke fun at me, hand me a beer and go, ah, you know, all that stuff you you talked about on your podcast, ah, didn't quite come true, did it? Well, of course, I mean, I am talking about hypotheticals. I'm not pinning my flag to the mast of either side of conspiracy theory or am I pinning my flag to the mast of um, benign, blind faith that many people seem to have in institutions of the state. We're going to get into that. There is no doubt. But at the very least, the very worst for me, I can put it behind me and just look like a um, an, an angry crank um, who, by that very token, was inspired such to make content for his podcast. I mean, if I came on here and said, well, I agree with everything that's happening, it wouldn't really be a very exciting listen, would it? It wouldn't be very interesting. It wouldn't be very engaging. We want to get the dirt under the fingernails. But at the same time, if percentages of what I'm talking about do come true then you really should be worried we should really be scared we should be really considering this a crisis of sovereignty a crisis of liberty a crisis of freedom not just a health crisis which it genuinely is I'm not a person who believes that this is not real never for a moment have I said that but it's the hypotheticals of the situation the potentiality for the vacuum to be filled by people wishing to What shall we call them? We should call them turnkey tyranny. The expression turnkey tyranny, which I only really thought of the other day as I was watching a program about about 1970s politics. Turnkey tyranny is the concept that all of the impulses towards totalitarianism are all just a moment away. They're ready to go. And I think that this crisis has proved that, that we were just the turn of a key away from the door being locked, and that all of the institutions of the state are quite willing to use a crisis to these ends. A crisis is bad for freedom. People want security. They're scared. They're running scared from these things. And that's one of the things that I really learned very quickly about this year, is that statistics... Numbers, rationality, reason, empiricism, all of these things go out the window when people are scared. You can present people with, um, you know, facts, at least to the best of our knowledge about certain situations, and they won't change their mind. This is the era of doubling down. This is the era of not changing your mind because of how you feel in relation to a situation. How your emotional state is, um, is what compels people to see their own truth. And that's part of the big learning experience for me from this year is that we don't have a shared vision of the truth. We don't have shared experiences anymore. We don't have a shared experience of politics, of history, of the news because the news cycle is beholden to marketing. The news cycle is beholden to clickbait and you know the Trump was the how could we say? Trump was the, the devil of the best friend that the news and media cycle ever had. All you had to do was write more stories about Trump. You got more clicks. And now there's a vast vacuum chasm opening up. And what fills that? Well, fear. If it bleeds, it leads, right? So the news media cycle is moving across um, this exponential growth in cases. And they are getting their clicks because people are scared and afraid. And And I don't entirely blame them because this is what the media has been feeding them endlessly. But it's clear that this last year was the year when we saw clearly that the systems were failing, that the systems failed spectacularly. The bandages which we've been papering over the cracks or whatever you want to call it, um, finally just came loose. And I've said it before in the podcast that what seemed to be a botched response by a broken system is kind of how we could define 2020 but certainly the belief and faith in the institutions just collapsed um and it collapsed spectacularly and while things were ticking along fine and the economy was moving and i suppose we were holding our heads above the water but this is definitely the year where the systems failed the systems failed us I said it before that we can characterize 2020 as a botched response by a broken system. And never was this more evident in um, the last 12 months, the last nine months. Um, The the papering over the cracks that we'd been doing as a society um, literally gave way at the seams, Um, whether it was people's faith and belief in the institutions or their blind faith in the institutions, either one of those polarized social opinions. created some form of mass hysteria, mass panic. Like I said, a botched response by a broken system and very much in 2020 where we shown starkly that the system had failed. The system was broken. That's my main takeaway from 2020. That and the uh, end of a 10-year cycle of inculcation by social media, but certainly the system failing spectacularly. And all of these things left us as a society almost begging for order, almost willing a form of authoritarianism to take shape. I mean, it's hardly really a take of 2020, but it's clearly obvious that big tech ascended to the throne of influence, uh, the greatest influence over modern, modern society, over mankind. It became the arbiter of elections. It decided who spoke, who didn't. Thumbs up, thumbs down. It decided the fate of literally everyone. Um, and there isn't really any denying or getting around that. We were corralled into our homes, um, spending way more time in front of the screen, and therefore um, we were at the mercy of big tech. And let's be clear, they, they showed no mercy in that regard. Um, they now hold the fate of nations more powerful than all. And let's be clear also that a weak USA in a powerful China, a powerful Russia, for those of you who do care about freedom or democracy or any of those things, is um, a dark, dark prospect. For those of you busy waving your black flags and busy waving your hammer and sickles um, in the first world who maybe have never visited those countries or really seen what happens there or has happened there, um, you might get what you wish for or a variation on it um, because as the USA tears itself apart it's clear that both of those nations prosper from that, um, and that should scare you, or at least pause for thought for a moment on the issue of geopolitics and big tech, but, you know, I understand it. There's something worth watching on Netflix that is probably more important to and let's be honest, these things are so huge they can break our brains trying to think about them. What do we do? What do we do as individuals? This is a complex question. As the words of Carl Jung, hey, there's pretense for you. The shepherd's staff becomes a rod of iron. and What initially is seen as, um, I suppose, as I said, this paternalistic attitude or even maternalistic attitude to our fears, to our anxieties, that the state will assuage them, are very easy to move into totalitarianism. And that is part of what really worries me about this entire situation. Now, I'm perfectly well aware and can admit that this is informed by my own nihilism, my own pessimism, my own view of these things. But Alan, that's not human nature. Can't you believe in the positivity of human nature? And yeah, you know what? I can. What is the positivity of human nature? That somebody um, tried to cut the fence of the gulag, but the but the gulag is still part of human nature as well. What I've learned is that, well, that was a broad stroke, wasn't it? A very broad stroke, my friends. What I've learned, I think also, is that people love rules. And in a time when they're scared, um, they want they want to be told what to do. They want to have rules. They want to have laws. They almost beg for them this um, rule following inclination that most people have and if you stand up in the room and go well you know as I've said many times in the podcast and I say to people when I'm debating or arguing with them um, I say to them can you tell me a moment throughout history when any citizens of a nation city state handed over all of their freedoms and got them back in one piece because I'd like to know what that example is. Please, answers on a postcard. Um, The answer is there isn't one, because that's not how the nature of politics and power works. For the hundredth time, that's not how it works. Freedom, you know, to only speak inoffensively is not worth having, as they say. But that had nothing to do with what I was talking about, did it? Well, my point is that... My point is that... um, we have essentially handed over everything for safekeeping to the state. We've said to the state, state, the institutions of the state, the multinationals and agents of power that, in my opinion, wish to enforce a form of technocracy upon it, we have said, here is all of our freedoms and liberties for safekeeping. Can you keep them safe for us while we are scared? Um, And never put down to malice what you can to incompetence. What is benign and what is malign? That is the biggest question, the biggest question I have about 2020. I mean, it's clear that at the beginning our leaders, our dear leaders were running scared from a situation that they had no comprehension of um, and they fumbled in the dark to see what, um, to see where the light switch was. I don't know. I'm not sure they even found it because I don't think that we elected them for this job. Yet at the same time, they were entrusted in guiding us through the situation. It's clear that nine, 10 months now, as we're heading into still the most severe terms of lockdown. So what is malign? What is benign? Certainly from the first lockdown to now, a very logical question would have been to all of the governments that are still persisting in lockdown would be, well, you had nine months to prepare for this situation. Now at the start of 2021, And what were you doing? We could have built Nightingale units, probably built hospitals. In fact, what about a recruitment drive to um, train people in as emergency uh, nurses or staff or anyone who could help, or to build this, that, and the other? I mean, in 2008, we poured everybody's life savings and pensions and um, every penny we had into the the banking system to not allow, allow it to collapse. And here we are after nine months. It seems like no one is prepared. No governments are really prepared. So what does that point to? What does that tell us? Does it point to the fact that they are all in on some grand Machiavellian plot, some huge globalist plot? If they are, well, then they're not really organizing it very well. It doesn't seem very structured. It would appear to me to be people making up decisions on the fly. But there seems to be a complete failing of the systems that I just spoke about before. So... Stands to reason, right? Um, the stakes are far too high for me to stand on the moral high ground. As I said, I'm just a heavy metal singer. Well, I mean, I was here to bang the drum for as long as I'm let and as long as anyone will listen. So what the fuck happened? How do we lose our minds so spectacularly? Again, cognitive dissonance. This is another phrase that I learned over the last year or two. And that is um, that is an absolutely massive part of trying to understand this year. And it seems in 2020, we were not meant to question. We're merely to absorb new rules, new laws. Democracy has been paused. That's very evident to me, paused. It's absolutely clear And the state of, and the state, not the state of the state, has found its way into the minutiae of your lives, who you can hug, who you can sleep with. I refer back to my Mr. Cromwell's Puritans, who you can hug. Open the window, shut the window, eat this for Christmas. And when in the history of mon- modern civilization did this ever happen, that you were told to not hug your mother? You cannot bury your dead. You cannot spend your loved one's last moments on this planet because you've been removed from them. Is this by design or by blunder? But by blunder, the outcome is still the same. And this is what really worries me. How have we... How have we blundered into this scenario? Because we gave politicians and health officials way too much power. I think they're drunk. We allowed them to become rock stars and to preen and pose and get their hair done before meeting the cameras. Certainly here in Ireland, a bunch of men and women who never dreamt of such control now hold the sovereignty of millions in their hands. How intoxicating, how intoxicating is that? And what you realise is that everything is short termism. Everything is instant. Instantly, the numbers are on the front of the paper. There are this many cases, and the culture war. And this is the year when the culture war broke free from its academic rage, I think, and was let loose on the, on the rational world. Um, The first month of lockdown, I think, people did try and work together, and there was a, uh, for a brief moment, there was a thought that maybe people will worry about something greater than, for example, identity politics. But um, that didn't happen after about a month. No longer could people just consider it a student virus. People in employment across the board were sent for unconscious bias training, learned about critical race theory and how they were racist without even understanding it, the systems they were in. It all sounded to me like original sin. I come from a Catholic country. I recognize the language, original sin. Your sins now spilled out into the mainstream without any possibility of either redemption or forgiveness. That's the difference in this religious revival. There isn't really any forgiveness. Were you part of the nuclear family? Well, then it was coming for you. Lockdown accelerated it all, as everyone was in front of their screens, imbibing more indoctrination. What was happening on Twitter became government policy. Toilet war, poli- toilet war, toilet wall politics, being erected in public as new edifices, new monoliths. In defence of it. I understood the protests in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd and of course the sentiment Black Lives Matter is a sentence. Who could disagree? They certainly did. All marginalized groups. The frustrations had my sympathy and they are inalienable right. There is no doubt to protest, the right to gather and protest. But I also knew people who couldn't bury their dead or spend their last minutes, as I said, with their dying loved ones because of the pandemic. And yet from my own door, I watched young millennials dressed as unicorns cavort on the streets, LARPing at protesting and break in the quarantine. What was more important? You know, if you look at the um, the Occupy movement back in 2008, there was a common enemy, let's say, the one percent, the banks, the Davos set, the billionaires who tell the working class how to live. And now the same banks have floats in the pride parade. They fund BLM, they bail protesters out of jail. Well played, sirs. Well played indeed that they've managed to hoodwink people into thinking they're now benign entities of freedom. So what else did I take away from this last nine months? What I sadly took, um, I suppose, from these last nine months, and I won't try and dwell too much longer on all of the pessimism and the negativity. I'm going to get to some positive things and some things that I learnt and applied. But what I did learn, um, sadly, was that sometimes you really get the impression Um, regardless of your intention that people just don't care. They actually don't really care about the same things obviously as you do but issues of my highfalutin um, concepts like liberty, freedom, sovereignty generally don't matter that much to people unless they bump up right next to them. As my friend said and he said it very bluntly and truthfully he said that you know Alan many people have been working jobs they hate for years. And this is just a break from that. They get to get up a bit later, they get to play Xbox, they watch Netflix, they walk the dog, smoke some weed, uh, make a curry with the girlfriend, the whatever, or the boyfriend. And they're quite, yeah, they're quite okay with this break. They're not concerned about the things that you're concerned about. In fact, even the onset of some form of digital authoritarianism or the implications of all those things don't really seem to worry that many people. And this is one of the big takeaways. One of the big things I've learned about this year is that, and it sounds really negative, but people kinda don't care. Um, in as much as even in my own country, um, we saw. Well, I think we saw throughout most countries, but certainly we were shown what the arts are worth, which is very little. Um, there were no provisions really for artistic expression throughout this whole period. In fact. It was treated with almost disdain or, um, yeah, treated as more or less something that was worthless to society. And this was very, very revealing in the sense that um, I tried to recalibrate my arguments, my debates, my conversations with people um, and steer clear of... Um, some of the more manic some of the more um, g- globalist broader um, arguments that I was having about geopolitics and all of these things and boil them down to simple things like you know that under lockdown you don't get to dance with a stranger again for example as I kept on saying harken back to my George Michael um, quote and this seemed to get to people to a degree but just the things like Just, for example, saying to people that if there are five levels of lockdown, um, as a musician, we don't get to play again until we get to zero. And in your heart of hearts, do you think we do get to zero, asking people? And even the most positive people kind of go, "Meh, well, no, probably not. And then you say to them, well, you do realize then that that casts a vast shadow over all of our human expression, our artistic expression, because... Under these terms, then, there is no comedy, there's no theatre, there's no art. There's no expression of these things that isn't validated by the state or isn't just expected to be online. And the human agency of art and what it invokes in people is just gone. It's just gone from society. And people very often just, with a blank look, just stare back at me like, yeah, well, well so what? Even things like Irish pub culture, which is what we're known for the world over, um hangs in the balance because if we all have to stay within our bubbles yeah of course you can have a few pints and sit at the table with the people that you know but who doesn't um love the feeling of sitting in that packed irish pub and the the buzz of people around and all that kind of stuff the stuff we took for granted as being part of our society could very well disappear and when you say to people well It's all very well that you want to just go and see Bruce Springsteen or whatever and some other whatever sentimental schlock like this and pay two or three hundred euro and a a private testing firm is going to um, validate your or invalidate your ticket purchase and you're going to have to stay in your square with your mask. Is that okay? that you're going to pay 250 euro to just see the boss and enjoy your sentimental bucket of syrup? Um, Is that okay? People shrug and go, well, you know, Live Nation are trying to provide a solution. Right, okay, but what about subcultures? What about small gigs? What about 100 people in a bar? What about all of these things? They can't happen in this spontaneous way. And what's really brought it very, how can we say, it's become very stark to me is that, to the most part, a lot of people, they don't care. They're not motivated by these things. They don't really have an interest in this. I have a terrible feeling that in Ireland that live music would just go the way of the dodo if um, it was allowed to, that people would just be like, well, yeah, okay, well, these are the new rules. And that was a really dark realisation. Um, I, I I, hadn't, as I said before, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, I don't have the blind faith in institutions, but I did have some faith in the idea that people would resist anti-humanism. But I'm not so sure anymore, and that's maybe speaks to where I am standing in relation to this whole argument maybe it speaks to my nihilism my pessimism maybe it speaks to my um misunderstanding of certain elements of the situation I'm happy to be proved wrong but at the same time deep down I've got this sense that when you present really simple straightforward human arguments to people very often the, what you get back is just an element of "ah, we don't really care about that and that's how I felt very much about the arts, how this next year ahead leaves musicians. Um, I really don't know because I, I just can't. I can't see how it comes back, certainly without flying, without the quarantining on returning, without all of these things. I mean, you know, I've, I've said it before in the podcast, but that, um, you know, um, you can't just purchase flights 72 hours beforehand going to a festival. Now, I hope these are just kinks that iron themselves out and we're allowed to return. But at the same point, by the same token, I do feel quite pessimistic about it. Of course, that's my nature, you say. But but, I've been very much struck by how little people seem to care about these things. Um, and that really worries me. However, I promise that I would make the last uh, section of the podcast maybe something a little bit more positive. Um, well, at least I'm going to try. At least I'm going to try. Um, did I learn anything from the last nine or ten months? Or you know, I think this is the common trope of most looking back style podcasts that you consider what you learned. Did you learn anything? Um, well, I think in truth, the sedentary lifestyle doesn't suit me. I'm a you know, this sounds very Harry Potterish, but I'm an adventurer by heart, and I like to be moving all the time. I don't like being at home. I don't, I'm not the home bird. So this forced form of um, isolation and almost, um, uh, you know, kind of informal open prison that we're living in um, causes, of course, many um, elements of anger to rise to the surface—anger at the situation, uh, senses, and senses of powerlessness, of worthlessness—all these kind of things because your human agency has been taken with you. So coping with that was a very um, interesting and difficult thing. I think that very much. If we are going to try and cope with this situation, we need to be um, find a way to develop new coping mechanisms, and they can't be just booze, alcohol, um, drugs, um, eating the worst foods just because they're comfort foods. I think we have to try and place a little bit of structural discipline on ourselves. Whether it's um, for me, it was running. I had to go running all the time. Um, of course, the gyms were open, then they were closed, and they were open, then they were closed. Um, You know, with no scientific basis for closing them, of course, but we expect that in this um, in the nonsense making um, world that we're living in right now. But they are closed. Football pitches are closed. Um, Places for people to gather to try and curate their mental health. And that was very striking as well. The previous to this year, we were constantly told about how. Um, about taking care of our mental health. It was this massive issue in society, yet now the media doesn't want to report how many people are killing themselves or self-harming or all of the dark things that are happening under the surface of lockdown. They don't want to report that. Yet a year ago we were told to take care of our mental health and then the football pitches are closed, the sports pitches, the gyms are closed, the coping mechanisms of people are closed. So what can you do? Create a home gym. I would say I've been trying to do this, trying to do my best Schwarzenegger hotel room impersonation. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but um, his hotel room workout, Um, trying to sort of try and create some form of structure, whether it's through running or the... Again, they are solitary tasks which um, are difficult to keep up because your natural inclination when it's freezing cold outside and the, the rain is teeming down is to go, you know what, I'm going to stay inside and eat something that gives me comfort um, or drink that bottle of wine. But if we succumb to that, it will only fundamentally make us more depressed. So trying to, you know, turn the tide um, to something a bit more optimistic or positive, at least, maybe not optimism, but positivity, will have to be um, trying to take care of not only our mental health, but our physical health. And... Um, and through that really has to be exercise, whether you buy a bike and try and go cycling or make yourself have some discipline to go running. That's how I sort of coped with not having an outlet for my testosterone. And I have to admit, sometimes it got pretty difficult. There were moments where I willed someone to cross my path. And those are dark thoughts that you're having because you're, because under the terms of this, you have no outlet for those things. Now, some people are happy with sitting on the couch watching Netflix all the time not me that's not who I am and most likely not who many of you are many of you are either that you're going to be happy and willing to do that some people are okay fine and well but the whole holistic yoga, sourdough, bread making um, let to know get to know your inner self thing really left a sour taste in my mouth because it seemed very disingenuous. it seemed a very middle class techie concern from people who were not struggling. Um, now how we dealt with that, how we dealt with that form of struggle that was the that was the process that I um, had to get to grips with and so on those terms it was, exercise running trying to do something to stay fit and um, because i certainly didn't make any music as a musician that may sound very strange but i found the constant mantra from people that um, this will inspire you really will it inspire me sitting around at home um, being angry and um, you know all that kind of stuff is that really going to inspire you to make music After all, making heavy metal is um, traditionally for me is um, well, the reason you joined a band was for human agency, human purpose um, to be in a room with other people when you made noise, whether it was playing a gig or rehearsing. Without that, I felt little inspiration to make music, to sit around here and just play the acoustic guitar. Certainly, I wasn't going to start um, doing Zoom gigs, playing 80s pop covers for people um, charging exorbitant money, um, that kind of thing. I understand the need to try and do something, but um, I felt little or no musical inspiration during this last nine months. That's just the way it was. Maybe it's because of the very fact that um, metal rock, whatever you want to call it, is such, has so many working human parts. Um, perhaps if I was a, an electronic um, composer or a DJ, it might've been a little bit easier to, to quantize, but um, playing rock and roll, no, it just didn't work. And that, again, comes back to, the, um, to my ideas about how art was treated during this whole nine-month period. And I think we saw very clearly how it was. It was given lip service in our budget here, but lip service only on the proviso um, that things would be allowed to open back up. They aren't. So, really, what was it worth? They, um, you know, they um, paraded a few um, confused and bewildered-looking... Irish musicians and curators of museums and um, live music venues out on TV, asked them a few softball questions. They went, oh, it's great to be getting some money from the state. And back in your box. No one ever questioned um, the purpose or the process of human agency or expression or all those kind of things. Um, all the kind of things that we just don't really discuss anymore. Or we don't seem to think have any worth. Anyway, so... Anyway, so the main coping mechanism I found was trying to um, to stay fit. With all that, I didn't have a musical coping mechanism. What did I listen to during this lockdown period the most? Um, I have to be honest. The most, um, the, my most played album of the year was uh, Deicide. Once upon the cross. Um, not the first two, which I actually prefer more, but once upon the cross. Something about the absolute brutality of it just really resonated with me in the with me during this. And interestingly enough interestingly enough, I listened to literally no rock and roll, no uplifting music, no happy music, no, you know, no Saturday night, friends around, have a shot, do a line, yes, we're all heading out somewhere. None of that. Um I it felt almost um, like a betrayal of the sentiments of that music to listen to it under these circumstances. I couldn't find any place within it that made sense to me during this. I only wanted to listen to the most violent, most brutal, most aggressive forms of music, and the, or um, neo-folk, um, acoustic, drone, a lot of atmospheric, ambient electronic music. Either that or the most brutal, violent stuff that there is. Nothing in between. Absolutely nothing. So it was mainly an awful lot of death metal that I listened to in 1988 to 1992, which spoke strangely to me, um, as that was my developing middle teenage years. And so what part of this felt the same? Was it being a frustrated 16-year-old in 1990 or 1991 who, f- who, who latched on to Deicide and Morbid Angel because that was the most brutal form of expression that your levels of testosterone could relate to? Um, that felt the same in this period. It felt very, very similar. And so most of the year was spent listening to brutal death metal. Um, almost all of it. And it hasn't changed. Um, I've relented a little bit. In the odd time now, I'll put on a little bit of some thing more uplifting or something to give me a little bit more of a light heart. But, alas and alack, it was very few things I listened to like that. What was I reading? Again, I found myself, my attention span sh- somewhat shredded. I tried to take it back from the screen, even though you're being drawn to it all the time. But I, again, I very much like my approach to music, I found it very difficult to read things that were lighthearted or to find something that would take my mind off the situation. I tended to read things that were somehow involved in it, um, whether it was Yuval Noah Harari's Homo Deus, trying to finish that, um, I suppose, a sort of, uh, as he says, a brief history of tomorrow, which was sort of understanding our process towards godhood or defeating death. Um, and then, of course, you know, you run into thoughts of, well, if the objective is defeating death for the 1%, they kind of, well, maybe they want to clear the decks before they do that. Hmm, Yes, indeed. So... Um, I was reading a book called by a guy called Marcus of Satoy um, called Things We Do Not Know about mathematical processes and theories that are um, applicable throughout nature. Um, a book called The Swerve about the Enlightenment and the beginning of the Renaissance. Um, I delved in and out of things. I tried to, during the podcast, I did a few deep dives into a few different people and I found myself reading um uh, for example, stuff about Alistair Crowley again. Um, sitting here in front of me is Diary of a Drug Fiend by Alistair Crowley um, and then Astral Projection, a book by um, McGregor Mathers. Um, and so the deep dives in the podcast inspired me to kind of try and get back into the idea of study, of training the mind. And that was very useful. Um, the podcast itself is is the most positive thing that's come out of the last nine months because it forced me um, to have something to focus on every week and then realised that it had some worth for people, that people were getting something out of it, whether it was entertainment, whether it was whatever. (laughs) Pity, who knows? Um, But it was something to focus on. It was um, something for my energy that wasn't compromised, in a sense, by the situation. It wasn't me being forced into one of those horrid um, squares on a screen singing along to some... Miley Cyrus cover with four of the musicians I've never met. i um, just in a sort of weird attempt to try and still be relevant. And um, it wasn't that. It was things that always came naturally to me, which was speaking. Um, it attended. It tended to my natural inclination to overthink, over speak. To, I suppose, the little small inner politician in me that had been struggling to rise to the surface. He got. Um, he got a little bit of um, light and heat and water and could grow a little bit. And so the podcast was one of the most positive things that came out of the whole process. And I I think that if everything opened back up tomorrow, I would keep doing it. There's no doubt about it. The idea that there's some sort of upward mobility and growth within something that you've created, I think is very important to the situation. And I've been saying to people like, Another way of coping might be to um, make something, to restore something, maybe buy an old... Um, I know a friend who's been buying old guitar parts off eBay, like um, old Fender, necks and this, theater, and reconstructing the guitars, and then either selling them on or giving them to people, but selling them on for a small profit, and now has this kind of small little cottage industry, which, um, by buying all these different parts on eBay... Maybe that can be inspiring. Maybe you need to learn how to bookbind, learn how to do something or other watercolors. Who knows? But something to take our minds off of this situation, but also add another skill to the bow, I think, is really, really important. Um, What did it teach me being sedentary, having spent most of my life moving? Well, that was complicated. It taught me that um, perhaps there have been situations over the last couple of years where because of the nature of um, being the band guy, by that I mean somebody who um, has created this, um, I suppose, this moving castle of a cottage industry around um, playing live, about constantly being in a different country. Um, It allows you to, in a sense, avoid and shirk responsibility because you're never around. You're always somewhere else, Um, which suits me, but at the same time, Uh, as my friends sometimes call me Peter Pan, it makes you, I guess, avoid responsibility. That is kind of how things go. And so um, being still for a moment, most definitely, most definitely made me um, consider some of the actions of the last couple of years, some of the things you've decided and done, maybe dwell a little bit on your own selfishness, your own narcissism, all of those things. Um, So in a sense, maybe it was um, I would have liked to have a pause for thought on my own terms and not have it forced upon me. And I would like to have maybe a pause for thought where I knew that, okay, on March the 17th, um, that's when you get back to doing what you're doing. So we'll give you a year out, a year off, um, a sabbatical, so to speak, from the life that you had to be able to take stock of it. Um, That would have been um, much better mentally than being it being forced upon you like you know the yoke being placed upon you and of course speaking of that we don't know when the end end date of this is um the truth is that creative people are in a permanent state of limbo and like i said in a rather my rather depressing comment i'm not really sure that people care about it how was it to release music in this period um well obviously there's been some new Dread Sovereign singles. I deliberately didn't release them in 2020. I suppose it was my own childish way of going, fuck you to 2020. Um, but the album was recorded in 2019, so nobody could have exactly foreseen what it, what was going to happen. And actually, Dread Sovereign, our tour with Saturnalia Temple and Nest, which happened in February, I think, or March, was the last tour almost out of the station. And It feels like a long, long, long time ago now. Um, Releasing music now is very strange because the idea, again, I keep returning to the same thing that so often that people are bored of hearing it, but human agency. You can't... The songs come out and you're just looking at numbers on a screen. So you're really a statistician. Um, That's what you essentially are. Um, You're just curating numbers. You're observing numbers as they move up or down. Um, How many likes? How many this? How many the other? And it's entirely not why I started playing in a band and I've said it to people and maybe they thought I was being over dramatic or whatever but um, if this is how it is then there is no really reason to make more Dread Sovereign um, music because Dread Sovereign is made for playing in a small bars playing dirty rock and roll shows Um, and you know I had a couple of debates arguments whatever you want to call it with people interviewing me Um, about the idea that, you know, creative people or musicians or whoever else, artists are now essentially content creators. That's exactly what you are um, and how you try and navigate that process is very complicated because there doesn't seem to be any reward for it. Um, the things that you took from being creative don't really apply anymore. Um, so do you work your Instagram um, to keep adding numbers, adding people, and then you get back um, X amount of extra people were added to the numbers who then viewed the video of the song. Um, But you don't get to go and play that song to people. Now, I am perfectly aware that I do sound to some people like a spoiled musician, and some people are just going, look, just have patience, which has never really been a great quality of mine. Yet, at the same time, When you really do, and this is one of the things, one of the other takeaways I have from this year, is that um, I've often said that I'm quite happy to be wrong. I really am uh, about the way I look at things in a year's time or nine months time. People go, "Ah, you know, you went a bit feral, a bit crazy. And if that's all that happened, then that's brilliant. That's great. I'm actually very happy. There's no selfish narcissism involved in my view that I want to be right. I don't wish for there to be all of these totalitarian, turnkey, um, you know, digitally micromanaged state infringements on our civil liberties. I don't want that to be true. Of course, I don't. But the fact is that um, I I am perfectly aware of my own madness. It's like it's looking in the window at me and I'm looking out going, oh, yeah, I can see you're there. If I wasn't aware of it, I probably would be most definitely mad. And I think many of you probably feel the same way. It's kind of like sitting on the ledge, looking down into the the abyss and you're kind of thinking, well, at least I'm aware that it's there. And that um, lets me know kind of that I'm not insane, so to speak, Um, in a in a year where I think an awful lot of people have lost the grip on their sanity. But certainly um, the rewards for being creative uh, have been recalibrated and. If the future is to just be a content creator, um, it wasn't just impetuosity that had me saying I'm not willing to take part in that. I genuinely was saying that I am not willing to take part in that. I have a strange feeling that somehow living in the second or third world might be freer than living in the first world or living in the West. Um, So if anybody out there has an apartment in Medellin in Colombia or Mexico City or... Uh, Santiago in Chile and wants to do a little house swap. Get in touch with me, I'm up for it. I'll just have to find a way to sneak my way out of the country. No, of course, to finish off with, or to get near to the end of, to believe that somehow we're going to move from being first world democratic states with long history and culture, um, a history of family, of society, and that all of it is going to be turned on its head in the space of a year, It seems fantastical, because if we are talking about um, some of these, you know, these theories, these reset theories, even I swore, I thought I wouldn't get round to mentioning it. And I don't really want to mention it. You're going to do your own research on that kind of stuff. But the idea that all of a sudden, all of the things that made your country, your society what it was, you, all, you have to forget them completely. Um, Primordial is my family business, so to speak, that's been curated and tended to over 30 years. And to just have it removed, as I'm sure many of you have had your small businesses, your family businesses, just removed and somebody gone, okay, can you just stay inside now and consume quietly and not come back outside? Is that really what's happening? Or are my opinions on all of this just amplified by what is only a health crisis. That could be true. I have a feeling it isn't. But at the same time, are we really expected to have all of our cultural, our societal cues, our language, our family um, history just uprooted, turned on its head and restructured within one year? I guess this remains to be seen and to believe that even though I have castigated them that the leaders of our own country are somehow in on, as I said before, some Machiavellian plot is quite, quite frankly uh, too much. However, of course, as I said before, um, a small peripheral country sitting in the, an outpost in the Atlantic doesn't get to call the shots internationally. And we can see already by um, what's happening in countries with more influence and power Um, we are at the behest of whatever those countries do. So in a way, we don't plot our own future um, in terms of um, dissenting from the mainstream narrative, dissenting from the path that all others seem to be following. What am I talking about? Who knows? Who knows? So... The end of Agitators Anonymous. The end of season one, I think. Um, I don't see any reason to go into season two, but sure, we might as well. There's going to be some interesting interviews coming up with people, some interesting takes on things. I'm going to try and temper my natural um, inclination towards the pessimistic by also throwing out some stuff about how we can try and cope about um, some forms of optimism. Follow me on Instagram at nemthiang underscore If you want to go to my Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Alan Averill with two capital A's, where I do post other podcasts, other forms of music. Other things go on there. It's like a sort of, um, kind of like a fan club on it's You know, we have book clubs and all sorts of stuff. Yes, book clubs. Um, don't worry, it's depressing books before you asking me uh, if we're doing uh, Harry Potter. That ain't true. Um And yeah, the new Dread Sovereign singles are out. Um, If you're in North America, go to www.metalblade.com and use the promo code AA Podcast, and you'll get 15% off purchases in North America. So you can order the new Dread Sovereign in North America. There you go. Hate Couture, www.hatecouture616.com is also a sponsor of the show. Hateful yet tasteful apparel. Who who wouldn't want a T-shirt of a venerated tyrant or serial killer that could upset your significant other. Who wouldn't want that? You're right, no one. No one. So it's been a rambling, strange podcast. Um, I didn't get to many of the things I wanted to get to. I started and stopped it several times. I felt part of it was too pretentious. Part of it was beyond parody. Part of it I just couldn't really get my head around talking about in any sense-making way. And that has been the main takeaway of this last year, sense-making. Our apparatus for sense-making has been almost destroyed. How are we able to make sense of things? What is malice? What is incompetence? What is benign? What is malign? All of these things. These are the things that's the melting pot of thought. And trying to find your way from one side of that to the other is very difficult, especially when you can see with your own eyes that the systems around around you are failing, have failed, are in cardiac arrest. But at the same time, as I've said before on the podcast, if we don't get back up, they, whoever they are, they win. So stay fit, stay healthy, stay sane. Metal never bends. This is the end of season one of Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill, over and out.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?